It's October 2021. It's been almost two years since Rebecca Hogue found her son Ryder dead after her boyfriend abused him. It's been more than a year since Cleveland County District Attorney Greg Mashburn charged Rebecca for her son's murder, which he knew she didn't commit. For those who haven't listened to previous episodes, Rebecca was charged, convicted, and sentenced under Oklahoma's failure to protect law, which says that if a parent or guardian knows or reasonably should have known that someone could kill their child, they can be charged with murder as well. Rebecca's currently serving a 16-month sentence in the Mabel Bassett Correctional Center for her conviction. But in October 2021, much of Norman had forgotten about Rebecca's charges. The town was preoccupied with the University of Oklahoma's football program, which had surprised the nation with a rookie quarterback. At the city level, Norman police had announced that they were going to rearrange their police department. They used the reorganization to ask for nine positions left unfilled during the national push to defund police departments throughout the country in 2020. The district attorney's relationship with the Norman Police Department would prove to be a sticking point in Rebecca's case. District attorneys throughout the country, by and large, base their prosecutions on police testimony. After all, detectives and forensic analysts are charged with collecting and preserving evidence that's used in charges and presented in trials. But the DA's office in Rebecca's case would actually ignore a detective's recommendation to not charge Rebecca with murder, even in light of the failure to protect law. DA Greg Mashburn argued that more evidence had been collected since that detective made that recommendation. But in the trial, his prosecutors would admit they had no way of proving Rebecca knew about abuse. And the assistant district attorney who prosecuted Rebecca's case had a history of going after women in similar cases. All these factors fit into a trial with blocked witnesses and evidence that eventually put Rebecca in prison. From the Norman Transcript, this is Emma Keith. You're listening to Protected, the system that put a mother behind bars. Today is episode three, Extreme Power. Like many cities throughout the country, Norman is a town that's intensely divided when it comes to law enforcement. Norman was one of hundreds of cities across the country where protesters took to the streets to protest George Floyd's murder, in light of the larger picture of police brutality and systemic racism in the summer of 2020. The protest came to a head at a June 2020 city council meeting, where Norman City Council decided to lower a proposed police department budget increase and reallocate the saved money to community programs and an audit function. Not only should we defund the police, but the revenue of the funds is to go to people getting mental health. We need better after-school programs. In April of this year, the city elected a mayor who ran on a campaign promise to add the nine unfilled positions back to the department. His push to bring back the nine positions came as violent and serious property crimes in Norman had risen over 2020 levels. But it also came as the Center for Policing Equity released a study that showed that Norman officers 
used force on black Norman residents 3.4 times more than they did on white residents. Senior members of the police department publicly voiced their opposition to the study and the ensuing media coverage. Our officers here, they're here because they want to keep our community safe. They want to make our community better. That's Norman Police Chief Kevin Foster defending the department to the city council in light of the study. Norman police function in a state whose public officials overwhelmingly support law enforcement. In April 2021, Governor Kevin Stitt signed a bill requiring municipal tax increases only be used for their specifically stated purposes. Stitt said the bill would ensure that when residents vote to increase their taxes for specific reasons, like police budgets, the government would have to bring the issue back to voters. The bill was authored by Rob Standridge, one of Norman's state senators. In his 2022 State of the State address, Governor Stitt called Oklahoma, quote, a proud law and order state. This kind of language has commonly been used by politicians at all levels to support law enforcement without scrutiny. If you're wondering how law enforcement in Oklahoma plays into Rebecca's case, it's because of the role police play in criminal cases throughout the country. Each year, Norman police are tasked with presenting evidence and testimony in hundreds of criminal cases to the district attorney's office. The Cleveland County District Attorney's Office then determines if and how they'll file criminal charges based on that evidence and testimony. While the Norman Police Department faced scrutiny from the public after the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, the DA's office has gone against them in a handful of high-profile cases. In July 2021, DA Greg Mashburn decided not to file charges against a caller accused by Norman police of filing a false police report that led officers to draw their guns on an innocent driver. Police pulled their guns on Stephen Bomar, a black man, after Bomar was reportedly cut off by two drivers who flipped him off, called him a racial slur, and then called police on him. The DA's office cited a lack of evidence that would raise Bomar's case to a criminal level. It's a striking contrast to Rebecca's case, where they admitted that they had no way to prove she knew Trent was abusing her son. Police investigated Ryder's death after Rebecca called 911 on New Year's Day 2020. Authorities found her boyfriend, Christopher Trent, dead by suicide three days later. In their investigation, Norman police determined that Ryder was injured in Trent's care before he was killed. The prosecution showed bruises on Ryder's genitals to argue their case during the trial. Each time Ryder was injured, Trent told Rebecca that her son had fallen. Rebecca has maintained she didn't know Trent was abusing her son. She told police what Trent had said and told detectives she thought Ryder had the flu. Rebecca thought she was doing the right things. And- Stacy Wright, a local advocate who's spoken to Rebecca regularly since her conviction, said that Rebecca never would have knowingly let Trent abuse Ryder. It's my understanding that one time Trent slapped his Ryder's hand and, and Rebecca said, don't ever, don't ever hit my child. You know, we don't, I'm never going to parent that way. Rebecca cooperated with the police investigation into her son's death under threat of prosecution. Sean Judy, 
the lead detective on her case, told Rebecca the police department would not recommend a murder charge. But in July 2020, Greg Mashburn handed down that murder charge through a grand jury. If you enable child abuse and the baby dies as a result, then you are guilty. Cleveland County District Attorney Greg Mashburn saying Hogue failed to protect her own child. One of the things, though, is prosecutors' offices are going to take... That's Guha Krishnamurthy, an associate law professor at the University of Oklahoma. They are dependent on the investigations done by police officers. And so in cases where police officers tell the prosecutors there's not enough evidence here, you know, prosecutors are likely going to um, follow that advice because, Mm -hmm. you know, the standard for the prosecutor to meet is beyond a reasonable doubt. That's a very high standard. Now, insofar as the advice or the suggestions by the police officers are not about the quantum of proof, but rather about what the defendant deserves as a moral matter. You could imagine that prosecutors' offices are going to make an independent determination about that. And, you know, that's their job, right? So they may not be particularly sensitive to the view of other actors, whether it be police officers or interest groups or, you know, uh, anybody else, even the victims. you know, a different kind of case, uh, you know, prosecutors' offices may just say, oh, we make that determination independently. We're going to take your, you know, we'll take your advice. We'll consider it in our holistic determination. But I don't think that that is out of the ordinary. Details that came to light after the charges were filed complicated matters even further. A recording filed by Rebecca's attorney, Andrew Casey, captured a conversation between Detective Sean Judy and a domestic violence advocate after charges were filed against Rebecca. In the recording, Judy called Rebecca's charges, quote, a shit case. We don't believe in this charge, and there's a good chance that she ends up in prison anyway. The recording captures Judy telling the advocate that the DA's office told him if he only recommended they charge Rebecca with enabling child abuse, he would, quote, torpedo their chances of getting a murder charge. In the recording, Judy says that they wouldn't even be having the conversation if Christopher Trent was still alive. Greg Mashburn disagreed. I don't see why it would be any different whether or not he was he was alive or not. But Mashburn's justification here doesn't align with past decisions he's made. Like we talked about in episode one, Before Rebecca's case came along, the Cleveland County District Attorney's Office declined to bring charges against two women whose children died as a result of child abuse. In both cases, Mashburn was at the helm of the DA's office. Mashburn also told reporters that authorities in the case had gathered additional information about Ryder's death after Sean Judy interviewed Rebecca. Despite this claim, The ADA throughout the trial hinged their argument on the assertion that Rebecca, quote, reasonably should have known that her boyfriend was abusing her son. They never presented concrete evidence that she actually knew about the abuse. We reached back out to the DA's office for this episode. Like in episode one, we haven't heard back yet, but we're hoping they respond so we can talk to them about why they chose to charge Rebecca. We also tried to get an interview with Sean Judy, 
but the Norman Police Department declined to fulfill our request. Again, we hope they change their minds. The DA office's decision to ignore Sean Judy's recommendations shocked Rebecca's supporters when the charges were filed. But prosecutors continued to treat Judy this way, all the way until Rebecca was incarcerated. Even though Sean Judy was the lead detective on Rebecca's case, the prosecution didn't call him to the witness stand at all during her trial in fall 2021. He was called by the defense, but it was while the jury was in recess the day before the verdict. Reese Gorman, who covered the trial while he worked at the transcript, said it's very unusual for the prosecution to not call the lead detective to the witness stand. And when the defense called Judy, he was actually extremely limited in what he was allowed to say, even without the jury in the room. I talked to defense attorneys and said, if the prosecution doesn't call the lead detective, like, we're not calling them. Like, that's, like, the big... Like, if they don't want to hear the lead detective, that's amazing for my client. But they called him because he he wasn't allowed to share his opinion on the case, um, wasn't allowed to pine on it at all, really, or do kind of... He wasn't even allowed to talk about what his case found in Rebecca because the grand jury had already said that Rebecca was going to stand trial. During Rebecca's sentencing in February 2022... Assistant District Attorney Patty High called Sean Judy lazy and inept. I've never seen someone attack a police officer. Prosecutors, they're supposed to be on the same team, attack a police officer like that. Very called him inept, lazy, um, not good at his job, and that he was inexperienced, which was not true. Um, And tried to just make it seem like a failure, in a sense. Reese says that Patty High might have attacked Sean Judy because the DA's office suspected that Judge Michael Tupper, who presided over the case and Rebecca's sentencing hearing, was not going to take their recommendation of life in prison. We'll talk more about why that was in a later episode. But Reese says that High was aggressive toward Judy and toward Rebecca throughout the trial. I mean, she was very determined to get a conviction of Rebecca Hogue. Um, She didn't mince words. She kind of said anything she thought that could make it happen. The prosecution was very aggressive. During the sentencing hearing, Patty High also said that there was, quote, nothing extraordinary about Rebecca when she fought for the court to give Rebecca a life sentence. High's behavior in the courtroom might be shocking, but it's not the first time she's prosecuted abuse cases in a way that's drawn attention. In 2007, High prosecuted Ray Dawn Smith, a mother in the Meeker, Oklahoma area, on charges of child abuse or enabling child abuse. Smith's ex-husband, Michael Lee Porter, had killed her daughter, Kelsey Briggs Smith, about two years earlier. In that trial, High had Porter testify against Smith. In exchange, Porter, who had killed Smith's daughter, took a plea deal that lowered his charges of first-degree murder, child abuse, or sexual abuse of a child to enabling child abuse. In exchange for testifying, Porter avoided a life sentence or even the death penalty and the possibility of having to register as a sex offender. In that trial, the DA's office argued Smith had to be aware of Porter's abuse. They argued this point even though Smith constantly sought medical treatment for her daughter's injuries. Smith was eventually sentenced to 27 years in prison on the charges. 
The power of the DA in Oklahoma is not disproportionate to the power of DAs elsewhere. Mm. It's just, it just turns out that DAs have a lot of power. And the power that they have is essentially, they decide whether to prosecute, to what extent to prosecute, and uh, to what extent to charge and sentence. It's just an extreme power. Like in Smith's case, Patty High fought tooth and nail for Rebecca's conviction in the face of facts that raised serious questions about the case. One such fact was that police found a carving in a tree next to Christopher Trent's body in Oklahoma's Wichita Mountains Wildlife Refuge, where he hanged himself. The carving read, Rebecca is innocent. Judge Michael Tupper kept the defense from showing a picture of the carving to the jury. He said it was hearsay on behalf of Trent. Tupper also kept the recording of Judy calling Rebecca's charging a, quote, shit case from the jury. While the jury was out of the room during the trial, Patty High said something that would later prove to shape the outcome of Rebecca's sentence. She argued there was no way for the state to prove that when Rebecca said she didn't know about the abuse, she actually did know about the abuse. High later tried to walk back this statement at the sentencing hearing, after Reese reported it. Patty High mentioned me at trial. Um, she tried to decline that she said something that she said, a quote that I quoted on that one where it said, the state can't prove, and she basically tried to discredit that, but everyone heard her. By now, you might be wondering how a prosecutor can behave like this during a trial. But Guha Krishnamurthy, the OU law professor we talked to, says that much of this behavior hinges on the politics of the office that a DA or an ADA works in. And in this case, leadership sets the tone. There are subordinate DAs, assistant district attorneys, who have a lot of power also, right? And the only check for them is whether their superior says, what are you doing, you know, but that might not actually happen. The people who work in a district attorney's office and how they prosecute are largely determined by the district attorney themselves. And because district attorneys are elected officials, the only way the district attorney changes is if the people in their district vote them out. But their races don't draw much attention from the public. And Krishnamurthy says that the power DAs wield is, quote, largely unchecked. Greg Mashburn will serve another four-year term as Cleveland County District Attorney after no one ran against him in April 2022. It's November 3rd, 2021. Rebecca's trial has gone on for a week and a half. And today, the prosecution and the defense give their closing arguments. Tupper tells the jury that in order to find Rebecca guilty, they have to know beyond a reasonable doubt that she either knew or reasonably should have known her boyfriend was abusing her son in a way that would have led to his death. After Tupper sent the jury into deliberations, he told Reese that he expected the jury would be there until early the next morning. But they actually returned just a few hours later with the verdict. Well, that's right, Kevin. The jury went in around 3 o'clock this evening, coming back about 15 minutes ago. Uh, Rebecca Hogue found guilty on first-degree murder charges. Rebecca was kind of like, my God, kind of just like, wow. Yeah, I couldn't believe it happened. Andrew was bawling. He was on the floor kind of crying. And 
not in the courtroom, but after he left, and he was very upset. Reese is talking about Andrew Casey, the attorney who took Rebecca's case pro bono. Unlike other high-profile cases, the prosecution from the Cleveland County DA's office refused to speak to the press after the verdict. The prosecution, surprisingly, after a conviction, they usually always answer questions from the press, but they, like, vehemently denied to answer questions, and they were kind of, they were just like, we're not doing this kind of thing. I don't think anybody was expecting a conviction. Um, I mean, even Tupper was saying that he didn't, he wasn't expecting a conviction coming out. News of the verdict reverberated throughout Oklahoma. But Christian Worthy said that Mashburn and Heise push to convict Rebecca goes deeper than just one case. Christian Worthy said it appears prosecutors go after failure to protect cases and similar cases to send a message to parents about protecting their children. But he said that factors like a parent genuinely not knowing of the abuse or living with fear of retaliation if they expose the abuse can complicate this outcome. I genuinely wonder whether in these cases we have parents who are being willfully blind or not taking enough action to determine what happened to their child or whether they are acting as reasonable parents and just did not know. When I see the stories in these cases, I see parents who are inquiring about the circumstances of their child's physical dangers and and, uh, harms, and hearing what seem to be reasonable explanations and proceeding otherwise in a responsible way for a parent, a reasonably responsible way for a parent. So I have my genuine questions about whether these laws are actually doing any future good. Thank you for listening to Protected, the system that put a mother behind bars. We hope you learned something new. Tune in in two weeks when we take an inside look at Rebecca's guilty verdict and sentence and the laws that influence them. This podcast is based off reporting and interviews conducted by The Norman Transcript. Our scriptwriter is Max Bryan, and editing and scoring is by Ethan Sook. Once again, I'm Emma Keith, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.